0: Okay, everybody, welcome back to Wrapped in Podcast. This is episode 23, uh, where hopefully we will conclude our thoughts on the final dossier. Our next chapter is 17, where we talk about Ray Monroe, who I guess was an FBI agent or a source or an informant. That's what Gordon told us in the return. What more do we find out in this chapter? I'm going to cold call Ken. (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Walzak?
1: Listen, I can't tell because the only thing I have in my notes about this is a gif of uh, Ray screaming, take him down. So I, I have no uh, no thoughts recorded on the matter. I, I did think it was interesting that uh, Tamara just had that parenthetical where she was like, if it was you that flipped him, you'd tell us, wouldn't you? Um, that, that seems like uh, a fun little way of playing around with the authorial voice and with the the dynamic between Tamara and Gordon Cole, especially since we saw Cole just sort of lay out everything he seemed to know about all of this at the end of the return but um and I liked the little paragraph about Jeffrey's lost or hiding or in some kind of neither here nor there netherworld, but of course why that's in the Ray Monroe <laughs> file is <laughs> right. anyone's guess
2: yeah um we we find out we did find out Ray Monroe apparently you know had been working for the FBI for a while you know he had been involved with like Duncan Todd and Vegas you know and so uh and then you know I I found these these kind of last few chapters really interesting just in terms of you know the the relationship they had to, to season three and then yeah we do get a lot of the Philip Jeffrey stuff here but we, they call Philip as being untethered in time Uh and that explains you know why Briggs hadn't aged and Ray Monroe did believe that he was receiving these instructions from Philip Jeffries. And I think during the season, we were speculating that I guess it's still sort of unclear whether that was Mr. C imitating Philip Jeffries. Uh, yeah. And then the Dutchman's gets a little bit of a, a, a backstory here. We find a, uh, when Monroe died, he had a matchbox for the Dutchman's lodge, which apparently had been demolished in 1967, but it does seem like the kind of spectral roadside you know, kind of motel that we see is some sort of, you know, metaphysical version of the old Dutchman's lodge in in Western Montana. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, f- I found it. I found it interesting. I like this little chapter. Uh, and then uh, I guess the other thing I, I, I really like this paragraph uh, and I think it had um, some bearing on the very, very, very last bit of dialogue uh, in, in uh, episode 18, If Jeffries is still out in the ether somewhere in the same way that Briggs was, lost or hiding in some kind of neither here nor there netherworld, could this experience be so assaultive and disorienting to the senses that one consequence is you're never completely sure exactly where or when you are? If we view Jeffries' behavior in your office in 1989 through this lens uh, that's directed from Tammy to Gordon, his alarm at learning when he's there becomes perhaps more understandable. And then uh, she goes on to – and I think we'd speculated about this too when we had uh, the scene in which we saw kind of the black and white you know, revert, retread of the uh, Fire Walk With Me, Jeffries sequence uh, in the new season where – Uh, again, Bowie's question, you know, to Cooper in 1989, who do you think this is there? I think I said, or maybe I can't remember who said it was that we thought Jeffries at that point thought that he wasn't seeing Dale Cooper, but was seeing Mr. C, who he'd had some contact with. You know, is it, is it future? Is it past? Um, so I, you know, for a relatively slight chapter, I thought there was some interesting, uh, material in it. And I think we have to view that. You know, I think what happens to Cooper at the end of uh, episode 18, when he's with Carrie Page back in this other version of Twin Peaks, you know, that he he's, he's come untethered in time too. And this experience has been so assaultive and disorienting the senses that you are untethered in time, not sure where or when you are. So, yeah, that's all I got to say about that.
0: Who do we think Coop was talking to or Mr. C was talking to on the Black Lodge communication briefcase? I think we'd speculated Judy. A
1: piece of wood in Argentina? <laughs> yes. A Jeffrey's tulpa
2: created by Judy? Or Mr. C? I don't know.
1: I mean, Mr. C seems puzzled by the role of Jeffrey's yeah, and aggravated right, about it right. throughout. So, it, the idea that he'd be pulling the strings seems unlikely, but...
2: No, I agree. I, I do think I that's something we speculated about at the time. But yeah, I I have to go back and... Rewatch all eighteen hours
0: at some point. <laughs>
1: More things <laughs> what, will be what revealed. What happened in Twin Peaks: The Return? It's all—it's all very hazy.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about Philip Jeffries and like where, when did he turn? Uh, he obviously had a fall at some point, point. and I guess the indication of that was when he called Albert and asked for information about that FBI agent uh, in. Columbia, Columbia, I, I think, yeah. yeah, who who ended up getting killed, uh, which it indicated that perhaps Philip was working with Mister C's cartel or something. I
2: still, yeah, I still don't believe that. I sort, I just sort of feel that he got in over his head in these, you know, whatever metaphysical waters, and then, you know, I, I feel like whatever ill he caused was probably not planned. You know, it was just kind of a, a consequence of him getting in over his head and, like you said, getting untethered in time
0: right yeah okay so i think we're to the final chapter now uh we've we've arrived at, today uh cha- today. chapter 18 today filed T
1: for today tea for today
0: <laughs> that's right <laughs> so yeah we we find out that uh laura is alive and sarah ate the bug uh, those are the two primary revelations of this book and this chapter.
2: Well, not necessarily that Laura Palmer is alive, but as I believe the only boldface uh, in this entire book, Laura Palmer did not die.
0: Oh, that's a good point. That's a very good point.
2: Yeah, and that she had Jeff. disappeared instead of dying. Yeah, so it, it's unclear what's known about her, but it, it does say she did not die.
0: Yeah. yeah. She was not murdered by her father, possessed by Bob right yeah i i
1: hate that so much i just it's it's so awful it's one of the examples of this book pinning down something that works kind of well in a visual aesthetic way in the show where we could talk about it and discuss dissect the different meanings and and valences and ways it could be taken and when you're just like well no she didn't actually die and everybody's memory of her was wiped clean except hours, but not in other places, and they, and you can't be internally consistent with it. I mean, the, the mucking about with the timeline, none of these other things would have happened if, if Laura Palmer hadn't died. Not just because of, like, the butterfly effect, but because of the whole purpose of the first two-plus seasons, which was to show us how a community is irrevocably altered by grief and all of these other things. So, it was irrevocably altered. Like, Shelley and, um, and Bobby never get together. Any number of things don't happen if she isn't killed at that moment so it's it's completely ridiculous and not feasible And the way that they're like well and then the microfilm just disappeared and it said something else uh is is frustrating for me and all the ways that i think kyle and i hashed out when, yes. when this when this first happened about mucking around with the time stream so i want to talk about the sarah palmer stuff because i hate the laura palmer stuff
3: well, let, let me before we yeah. move
1: on to that. Let me add
3: on the on the Laura Palmer stuff, though. You're right, Kim. We do get there on page one thirty two. The official confirmation that the first two seasons of Twin Peaks have been undone uh, through part seventeen of the return. And what it reminded me of was the Doctor Who episode, The Waters of Mars. In which David Tennant's doctor disobeyed the laws of time. He he altered the events surrounding a fixed point in time, and yet he failed to save the life that he intended to save. Ultimately, the river flowed in the way it was supposed to flow. Uh, and and just as an aside, the waters of Mars took place uh, at the research outpost Bowie Base One. Whatever that's worth.
0: Yeah, that's 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 great. That's a good episode of Doctor Who and you know there there's a comparison there between what the doctors doing there and what Kyle appears or <laughs> Cooper appears to be doing <laughs> right. uh in the return jr jr how did you
2: feel about this you know because it seems like uh Ken and Kyle did not like this uh i kind of did enjoy it i mean i you know i i, I don't know i was just curious to see what what you thought jr since i don't think you've weighed on it
0: yeah, well, I think on the one hand, I remember I remember sitting on Ken's couch uh, in as we watched the final episode, saying, "They just fucking retconned the entirety of season one and two. It's gone. It's wiped out. It never happened." Uh, and then as we continue to watch the rest of the episode, you know that became ambiguous. But I'm fine with it if that's what they did. I think we're back to David Lynch and Mark Frost as vengeful auteurs, um, putting the knife in the original series. The problem that I guess I would have is if that were if that's what happened. If that's the answer to the return that Laura did not die, um, I'm comfortable with that. I'm less comfortable with this book saying that. I yeah. guess. Because yeah. it's hard for it's hard to really make sense out of any of the entire fucking book. Yeah, it's like where this book is like some weird, um, you know, memento from a place between two different time streams. Right? It doesn't make yeah. any sense that that these things would be collected and put together uh, for that to be the case. But you know, I'm, I'm, maybe we're overthinking it. Um, I, I'm I'm not troubled by that being what happened. Uh, I, I'm not troubled with that being what happened, and that not being consistent with with other things, because I don't really think that David Lynch cares about that at all. And I don't, and obviously Mark Frost appears to be all in, and I think he's fully on board with that vision, since he and you know David Lynch co-wrote the whole thing. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a weird way to do it, and like the disappearing microfilms and stuff. That's just. Uh, that's a little tough it's weird that he made it that concrete yeah. yeah i think he could i think he could have let that out in a way that was more subtle and and less sort of overdeveloped yeah. as i thought it was handled in the book yeah
2: and and i still don't feel like it wipes out you know as everybody else thinks so explicitly the events of season 1 and season 2 i mean that happened, but there was another timeline. And like, I don't think this one necessarily replaces one. I mean, there's this quote. I was going to talk about this article later on, but I, I like this little paragraph and the quote might work better here. One of my favorite things I've read about, uh, the season since, uh, it ended was from, uh, a guy Jonathan Foltz wrote a piece in the LA review of books a month or two ago, talking about, I think it's about Lynch's late style, but there's this great, little quote in there. It's great. Yeah.
0: It's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very good. Piece. Yeah. And, and he
2: says here, it's as though twin peaks Return takes place in a world where different versions of the same story are played out on an endless loop performed by an often anonymous cast of characters whose lives only occasionally intersect, but whose absurdities and traumas never cease to echo each other in new uncanny permutations. It is the world we know, but the names and the faces are wrong. More strangely, the, this feeling of something being wrong is the only compass, the only coordinates we have, uh, and so I I think it it's more along those lines of like um, it doesn't mean that those things didn't happen, they happened, but there's multiple versions perhaps of these characters, and it seems like, as he said, stuff like the traumas or these echoes of these kind of relationships, you know, it it, it they. They Those are what recur and kind of play off each other, as you said, in these kind of uncanny permutations. And I I don't know, I like this kind of mist of forgetfulness, you know, kind of take uh on the fact that Laura Palmer did not die and the fact that it's when you try to remember it too precisely, it's like something goes kind of cloudy and, uh you know, the town forgetting it. You know, I mean, it, it is very, you know, kind of back to the future. I also related it to the kind of, if anyone's familiar with the kind of Berenstain, Berenstain, bears alternate yeah. timeline. Yeah. You know, kind <laughs> yeah. of controversies. I mean, it kind of reminds me and the of,
1: Sinbad movie, right? All those things,
2: all those kind book, of right. little bizarre, you know, things like that, where perhaps you know ourselves in an ancient, you know, in in in, in some future going back and, and retconning our own existences and memories as we as we uh, sit here. Uh, but it also kind of made a couple of things early on in the season correct because. Leland in the Lodge, I think is, you know, he says, uh, I did not kill anybody at the end of season two, I guess. And then Lodge Laura says, I am dead, yet I live. Uh, And I believe the second episode of the new season. Uh, So, I don't know, I didn't, I I didn't mind it. And it it kind of, uh, it reminded me of a book I read recently, uh, The Buried Giant by recent Nobel laureate, Kazuo Ishiguro, his most recent novel, in which set in Arthurian Britain and there's this mysterious mist of forgetfulness that hangs over this entire, you know, kind of region. And then you find out the reasons for it and it kind of, yeah, I, I don't know. I liked it. Uh, so I, I will, I will speak up for it and I can see why it, it's driven a lot of other people, including Ken and Kyle, uh, crazy, but I, I enjoyed it.
0: Jeff, I forgot about that essay. Um what uh, and I can't remember if the essay made this point or if I'm making it or somebody else did but the other thing that comes to mind is the movie Rashomon the Akira Kurosawa right, movie yeah. uh, which uh, and I I I, th- I swear that essay referred to it so I'm not going to take credit for making the association but um that's a movie that, w- that involves multiple characters providing their own uh, subjective account of the same event and it's all different and you know it's that's that kind of notion or effect is going on here and i like i like your defense of of uh of of what we see in this chapter of the book and this idea i i I like like i said i like it more as conceptually than i do like as it's actually laid out in in the book but
3: well and i'll say as someone who is with ken on this the way the way the two of you just described that and particularly referring to the idea of uh of it being you know several people's subjective take on it you know I know uh, in in our notes for for uh, the final dossier uh, Jeff had pointed out that uh, some of the the horns and Hayward stuff sort of was reminiscent of what happened to the compson family in in Faulkner's novels the sound and the fury and Absalom Absalom and of course Absalom Absalom is all about the fact that all these people have a different take on Thomas Sutpin yeah, right. and on what his motivations were and they're all working Working from different pieces of information, they're all working from different biases, and none of them really has the whole picture. Uh, but they're all getting at a piece of the truth. That's that's integral to ultimately arriving at the right answer. And and although I realize David Lynch doesn't want us to be able to put the puzzle pieces together, I will say that I like the idea that there are puzzle pieces and that even though we can't ever make them all fit, they at least are there and we can get a more complete picture than we had before.
1: Yeah. And it does seem, and to use JR's vengeful auteur phrase, it just seems extra vengeful, extra cruel and vindictive to take away the raison d'etre of the entire series. To, I mean, retcons are one thing, but to say, well, the... the initiating event of this entire series is gone now. Um, and and to leave behind a, di- a timeline in which all this other stuff somehow happened anyway, just seems a bridge too far for me personally. It wasn't it was a good spirited defense, though, uh, Jeff, I, I think it's easier to defend uh, Lynch doing it in the show than it is the way that Frost has to reckon with it in the book, uh, as I guess J.R. said.
2: I would agree with you, uh, but I, I still felt like it was it was interesting that he he picked up that thread, and I yeah when I, I agree that Lynch I, the way it's done in the show is 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 more interesting, more open ended,
1: more audacious. Uh, but I also and weirdly, precisely because we get that very open-ended finale in the other dimension with um, the sex magic and everything. Right? If they just sort of left it after the um, uh, fire walk with me uh, recap and and Laura disappearing, it would have been more unsatisfying. Even though in the moment watching that last hour, we were like, "Wait, this is where we're going. Yeah. This is what we're doing." Driving. Well, I, I have more to say about that later. I'll save it for my kind of final thoughts.
2: But yeah.
0: Yeah, I think very much from Lynch's perspective, in no way, assuming that what Jeff and and I think is true, uh, do I think that David Lynch is saying, uh, you know, now it's time to pull out your Sharpie marker and black out seasons one and two. That e- vengeful auteur or not, I don't think he's doing that. I think he'd say those things exist and they happened, and now you have to think about the idea of that happening and that not happening at the same time. Yeah. Not yeah. not wiping it out. Right. In the same
2: way that, you know, Bill Pullman existed, but then Balthazar Getty existed and Lost time. Right, you know right. what I mean? It's not, exactly. it's not one or the right. other. It's both and. Yeah, so...
1: But Right, but Lynch does a, such a better job of it than Frost because he has such a different toolkit. I mean, Lynch's version of it on screen is a lot like um, the Lost Highway thing. Frost's version is more like the Owen Wilson actor in Royal Tenenbaums, who's like, uh, everybody knows that Custer lost at Little Bighorn. What my book presupposes is, maybe he didn't?
0: <laughs> now, I I, I, I think uh, that's good, but... But I, I think of uh, Frost's version of things as more like uh, uh, Charlie and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in the mailroom with his chart of connections <laughs> pulling everything <laughs> yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. M- meme Charlie. Yeah. I, I was also going to say, you know, I was
2: reminded that you know I think Lynch never wanted to solve the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer Correct. and what more kind of you know <laughs> audacious way to finally get what you want by you know ma- making sure that she never died. Yeah, no that's question. the one way to never have to solve the mystery of who
0: killed her. Yeah. All right, Ken, let's. Why don't you fire up your Judy stuff? Okay.
1: Uh, so a thing that I found really interesting was that we learn uh, not just that Sarah Palmer swallowed that frog bug uh, that swallowed the fly, perhaps she'll die, but uh, that her name is Sarah Judith Novak Palmer. Uh, and Judy, of course, is, is short for Judith. Uh, and I was very interested in the biblical slash apocryphal character of Judith. She appears in the apocrypha. Her story people think did not make it into the canonical Bible because there's a lot of overlap with Esther, the story of Esther. But in the story of Judith, Judith is a widow. She's apparently the most beautiful woman in all the land. She lures an evil king into her web, or likely into her bed with wiles, her feminine wiles. This evil king, Holofernes, she beheads him, carries uh, the head around in a bag, and they try to make her a hero, but like Cincinnatus, she rejects the honor uh, with the Israelites and goes back to her life as a humble widow. Um, that, that description returns to her life as a humble widow is from a dissertation that I pulled up from 1994 by Peggy Curry, I want to give her credit, Peggy Curry of UMass Amherst, who has a really interesting survey of the biblical Judith in literature and art. She, she calls it an intertextual cultural critique, and I like it quite a lot, especially this bit uh, from the introduction, Judith asserts herself and acts she had vision. She discovered right action and followed it through at great personal risk. She has no need to control or rule over others, though a natural leader of people. End quote. And that to me is a fascinating, like, mirror image of Dale Cooper. If we're setting up Judy Jowde as an arch nemesis for Coop, then this character, this description of a character is is really a lot of things that Cooper lacks, right? Like, Coop has vision, but he struggles with when to act and how to be most effective when he does. We've compared him in past podcasts to, like, uh, Mike Hammer or Indiana Jones and in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where he's a protagonist whose decisions some Sometimes fail to change anything of consequence, or where things happen around him, particularly like Bad Coop trying to look for these coordinates in the uh, um, in the return, right? Um, and. Regular famous original Dale has people skills, but he's obsessed with like precision and control and prone to putting his romantic interests ahead of his professional responsibilities. Again, all by direct contrast to Judith, who's allegedly the most beautiful woman in the world, but is not interested in control and who saves her nation and then fades back into obscurity. Um, and there's, there's a whole theory about how Uh, the book of Esther made the cut, and Judith uh, was relegated to the Apocrypha, and it has to do with the ways in which Judith uh, upends the usual hierarchies in uh, the Judeo-Israelite society that's being described in these stories. And so... Um, I found a piece in something called Biblical Archaeology Review that mentions, unlike Esther, who allows the males around her to carry out the violence on her enemies, Judith herself wields the sword, a sword that belongs not coincidentally to a man. This is not the only way in which Judith subverts the patriarchy. She's a rich, beautiful, presumably childless widow, all potential threats to the patriarchal order. Wealth is meant to be owned and controlled by men, as the book of Esther demonstrates, Beauty is dangerous if not properly controlled. Widowhood was not a desirable state, especially for young women, etc. So, the idea is, of course, that uh, that Esther never threatened the status quo, but Judith was a dangerous woman who had the power to subvert Jew- Jewish society. So, I think that all of that is interesting if you're setting up a kind of a foil for Dale Cooper and a foil for the order and uh, society that Cooper himself represents, coming all the way down from the very beginnings of Judeo-Christian tradition. I also think it's interesting that the bad guys that Holofernes and uh, the um, invaders in the Esther story represent are Assyrians, and that Assyrians are uh, the empire that took over in a line of succession, I think, following the the Sumerians uh, with their um, uh, Anunnaki and um, uh, Utaku, right? So... uh,
0: The Babylonians came after the sumerians. Right. And the and
1: the, not uh, not the and the assyrians killed the babylonians, I think. Right. right. Yeah. So, um uh, yeah, so I know I, I think that the, the the biblical story and the history of Judith is is fascinating when you try to um, overlay it with bits of both this mythical choweday creature and uh the, a, a a a dangerous threat to the patriarchy um that can be contrasted with Dale Cooper. That's that's where I'm trying to go with it.
0: Okay, so I guess we'll now move into the conclusion of of this episode and the past four. This and the and the past three episodes of Wrapped in Podcast with our final thoughts on the final dossier. Um, Jeff, do you want to start? Yeah, um,
2: let me get my notes pulled up here. Yeah, so
0: we're gonna edit that shit out. Okay,
2: all right. So what I was <laughs> going to say, edit this bullshit out. Uh, I guess what I was going to say was just sort of maybe the most shocking thing about the final dossier. It's kind of on some level, as we've alluded to a few times, how relatively straightforward it is and how interested it is in tying up all these kind of narrative loose threads and even kind of very surprisingly like making reference to and making more explicit, you know, things from the, you know, the, the conclusion and making what was left implicit and open-ended Fairly explicit uh, here. And so, but I, I was kind of saying if, th- if that's the most shocking thing to me about this book, was how straightforward it was. Perhaps the most interesting thing overall, you know, especially now that I've had a few months to think about it before I've rewatched it about Twin Peaks to Return is Lynch's director's refusal to kind of play by any linear narrative rules, you know. And I think that um, unresolved contrast, you know, I'm not sure if we, I, th- I think we often exaggerate the. Discrepancy between Frost and Lynch but it's kind of inevitable especially with the two books as evidence um, and it's a lot of what we discuss about the differences between say episode 17 and episode 18 the conclusion uh, and yet as we've all pointed out there are discrepancies between the timelines and it's unclear if some of these ancillary works like the secret history of the final dossier also the secret history of Laura Palmer the autobiography of Dale Cooper and the Diane tapes which are explicitly kind of uh, mentioned in the final dossier and like, you know, uh, doubt is, ca- is cast upon their validity. Um, are they considered canonical in the same way as episodes season one through three are uh, in part, you know, I think that that question arises because of these discrepancies and in part because, you know, I called him the Uber auteur Lynch wasn't like explicitly involved with, with these ancillary works. Doesn't seem that concerned with them. And so, I guess my question was, you know, in terms of what to do uh, with the book, it does seem to me in that straightforwardness, as I said, a different thing from uh, the most interesting thing about season three, which was that uh, refusal to play by any linear narrative rules. And so uh, I'll go back to that LA Review of Books article by Jonathan Foltz. And I think there's just a, a brief quote I'll read here where he's describing the style of uh, the of uh, Lynch's direction uh, in the new season. The new season challenges us most in the way it seems to undo the story it is telling, moving out of sequence and perversely out of rhythm, indicating a wealth of paths it has no interest in going down, spending long stretches of time in scenes that do not immediately further the plot, and jumping without warning from characters and locales we know to those we don't and never come to know. Uh, the result is a feeling of erratic transfixing chaos and then he says later on uh, instead of the nostalgic recreation of a familiar form Lynch gives us broken bits of what we love collage together in surprising often baffling ways the series rejects smooth pacing narrative efficiency and well-defined character arcs plot threads are introduced and abandoned seemingly at will unexplained gaps in the story are the norm the show plays inconsistent games with chronology running roughshod over narrative continuity Uh, and so I guess you know kind of my um Larger question, uh, you know, uh, Frost, the The article also talks about the relentless encryption of narrative information in the show. And I think Frost plays along with this uh, in this more straightforward traditional manner in the book. But one thing I noticed on my third read through is that Most of what Tamara Preston uh, offers up, especially in the final third of the dossier, when the laws of time and space, as we understand them, may not necessarily apply, is not as straightforward as I originally thought. It's actually speculative and presented as such. She mostly is just asking questions about things uh, and wondering about them instead of giving any definitive uh, speculations. So, uh, I think we have to, in the end, I took the dossier as one likely interpretation of the events of the series, but not the definitive one by any means. We probably privilege it more because it's from Mark Frost, one of the two original creators of the show, Uh, and I think it helps point us towards some of the right questions and abstractions perhaps, but I still think that the final meaning of the show is up to us, and I was reminded that uh, in one of the only interviews that he gave uh, about the season near the beginning of it, he said, we should keep our eyes on the donut uh, and not the hole. <laughs> uh and i and I think the difference that um Major Briggs lays out in the secret history about the difference between a mystery and a secret uh is probably also of, of operative importance. Those were some of my main th- thoughts about uh the book as a whole. And as usual,
3: whereas, whereas Jeff is much more comfortable with, with the abstraction, I, I feel the need just to force it into, into a concrete shape. So, uh, I'm always appreciative of Frost's efforts, even when, uh, they're maybe not, uh, not his best work. And so, uh, uh, here now, if, if no one has anything else they want to interject at this moment, I, I will present to you my grand Tammy theory from, uh, from the final dossier. Um, to me, it appears very, clear after reading it, that uh, from the very beginning of the final dossier, uh, Special Agent Tamara Preston is telling us a story that is very different from the supposed uninterrupted narrative of her Twin Peaks travelogue. Uh, in the opening paragraphs of her inner office memorandum to Deputy Director Gordon Cole, Tammy speaks of having been numb to the relentless passage and ravages of time, and she equates herself with Major Garland Briggs uh, by declaring, I'm the archivist now. All of this is on the first page of, of the final dossier. And that seems like a staggeringly arrogant declaration for her to make, given Major Briggs's long service gathering 200 years of primary source documents as compared to her uh, rather meager 10 or 11 months of talking to townspeople and skimming through newspaper articles on microfiche. So since Tammy never really seemed that full of herself, perhaps we need to delve more deeply into what she's actually saying here. Later on uh, in, in a sequence that Ken has, has spoken about at length, uh, when she's excoriating Vivian Smith. Lindstrom Blackburn Niles, Tammy speaks of marbled Italian at halls on page 52, just before she lapses into uncharacteristically rhapsodic philosophizing on page 53. And again, as Ken's already pointed out, this is this is off-putting, this is out of place, it's this bizarre rant, so uh, in context, it doesn't make much sense, so what what is going on under the surface? I mean, what are we supposed to think of when she mentions marbled Italian at halls and then goes into philosophizing? Other than the obvious connection to Major Briggs' vision of the palazzo in the immediate aftermath of the dramatic events that occurred at the end of season one. Um, and then while she's, you know, while we're bearing these oddities in mind, and of course the other things I'd mentioned about the recurring gender switch doubling, Gersten and Jerry, Annie and Dougie, Evelyn Marsh described as a him instead of a her, um, it's intriguing that Agent Preston has a theory that as she put it, Briggs knew about the Blue Rose Task Force, so he stashed the information inside some innocuous digital cutout where he knew no one else would look for it. That's on page 107. Think about that notion for a moment. She's she's positing that because Major Briggs was familiar with the Blue Rose Task Force, therefore he hid the coordinates in a place where it wouldn't occur to anyone to look. So I want to put a pin in that for a moment. Later, when she's wrapping up her thoughts on Major Briggs, she mentions Philip Jeffries and describes him on page 113 as a figure around the margins of this whole narrative. And that's that's a particularly interesting way of putting it, because, of course, the narrative of Major Briggs's dossier also contains observations written in the margins by Special Agent Tamara Preston. So she's effectively equating Philip Jeffrey's role in the Blue Rose Task Force story with her own role in Major Briggs' dossier. And then, as we mentioned, she later claims that she recently discovered that Judy was Day, a fact that Gordon revealed to her in Buckhorn a year earlier, and she discovered this by looking behind wallpaper that she somehow knew had been added 20 years earlier, according to what she writes on page 121. Tammy then comes up with an entirely irrational, yet we know an entirely accurate explanation that Major Briggs and Philip Jeffries both came unstuck and were able to pass through portals, not just in space, but both backward and forward in time, leaving them unable to discern whether it was future or it was past. And and we heard Jeff quote that before about uh, wondering openly whether the experience was so assaultive and disorienting on the senses that one consequence is you're never completely sure exactly where or when you are. Now, she backtracks on that to Tells Gordon not to hold her to it, but the, she then proceeds to mark the very next Manila folder today. And she insists, This happened today, Chief, just a few hours ago. And she goes on to say, Earlier this morning. And she then describes what she does that day. And, and here's the sequence of events She's going through old issues of the Twin Peaks Post when she decides to look up the reports of Agent Cooper's original disappearance in 1989. That leads her to go check the police records regarding Laura Palmer's disappearance, which leads her to interview multiple employees of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department, which leads her to search the public records on the Palmer family, both in the newspaper and in the police records, which leads her to research Sarah Palmer's childhood all the way back to her birth in Bellevue, Washington. Bearing in mind, this is being done in a newspaper morgue that still uses microfiche, And that then leads her to a 1956 report in the local newspaper from the area near Los Alamos, New Mexico. And she caps it all off with a review of Sarah Palmer's confidential medical records. And she's done all of that, including presumably reviewing a small-town New Mexico newspaper archive that probably still uses Microfish too. And she's done all that since this morning. This is a wildly chronologically implausible claim. And yet she notes that she's glad she's written it all down quickly because her thoughts are becoming more muddled. She knows something's wrong. And on her way back to Philadelphia at the end, she explains that she's been changed. She feels like a player on a stage who doesn't know why she's there or what her lines are, but she knows she's the only one who can put the pieces of herself together. She isn't sure where that leaves her. So where does that leave us? We know that Tamara Preston has been on the radar of the Blue Rose Task Force since she was in high school. She's exhibited oddly precise insights about Doppel Cooper's reversed finger, about the glass box, about tulpas. She's done it in the secret history. She's done it in the final dossier. As Ken pointed out earlier, Albert's voice has bled through in Tammy's words in these files. And just as Major Briggs traveled back and forth through time, just as Agent Cooper and Agent Jeffries came unstuck and had to ask what year it was— Agent Preston is exhibiting a growing uncertainty about where and when she is. And yet, even so, she's starting to see the big picture. She's starting to discern the sense in what the log lady said. Margaret told us, page 94, to seek out those who need us and to do what we can for them, but also to accept that there's no light without darkness. And clearly, Tammy's beginning to view the world not through the stark blacks and whites of the lodges or of dale cooper's suits she's seeing it instead with a clarity of vision as a constant interplay of both light and shadow requiring unending vigilance and you see that in the language of what follows in the last pages of the book As she's returning to Philadelphia, she's talking about the penumbra fading. She's talking about staring into this darkness. She's talking about being determined never to look away. You know, she she looks back to uh, Margaret counseling that when a dark age comes, hold the light inside, and that's what she's committed herself to doing. She says she feels like she laid her hand on a third rail. She perceives a tale of sorrow and suffering lit by flashes. She sees light shining in my eyes. She knows something Lurking in the darkness could put out the lights for good. She's determined to keep all my senses wide open to the here and now. And, and she hopes to meet Margaret someday. And in the chapter titled Final Thoughts, Tamara Preston certainly echoes Margaret Lanerman's own final thoughts, which she gave to Deputy Hawk the day before she died, when she wrote, This truth I know as sure as the dawn. Darkness will always yield to light when the light is strong and tammy knows this is true she knows her experience has strengthened the will to live as she should dedicated to the proposition that we mustn't give up ever and i think the conclusion that we have to get to is she is the archivist now she is the one who occupies the same margins as philip jeffries her unconscious mind I believe, is the place where Major Briggs hid the truth where no one would think to look for it. She's the latest Blue Rose Task Force member to be sliding through time, but she's the one who's remaining tethered to the here and now. She's the one who remembers what's been lost and who accepts the darkness, yet helps those she can by continuing to hold the light inside. And so I I think actually as, as much as I dislike parts of this book, as much as I dislike Christabel's portrayal of this character, honestly uh, to, to address some of Ken's concerns that he's raised about, uh, about fridging and things of that nature, the treatment of women, particularly in this book, honestly, in a show that has always been centered on men Finding the missing pages penned by a silenced woman? It's Tammy, the illuminating author of the indelible written word, rather than the unreliable reporter recording untrustworthy tapes who is capable of shining a light on the missing Carrie Page. In a show that's been too focused on white knights, tilting at windmills while riding to rescue damsels who've decided for themselves how they're going to deal with their own distress, it was Diane who set Doppelcooper Cooper up. It was Lucy who shot Mr. C down, and it's Tammy who holds the key to bringing the good Dale back to the world in which he belongs. So, the answer to How's Annie is I'm fine.
1: And the answer to Gotta Light is Yes, she does. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: Damn. That's great, Kyle.
1: It's fantastic, and I'm right there with you on the uh, the alliance with her and and Margaret. I thought you were going to make an assertion that she was a uh, an unstuck in time Margaret Lanterman. Um, my my only concluding thought was going to be to tie a piece of her last spiel back to my favorite piece from the Margaret Colson chapter, and uh, you already drew that connection for for me. So uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step fantastic. on you there. No, no, it's fantastic. That's uh that's that's everything I would have wanted from no, a uh, a Kyle rant. That was and, spectacular,
2: and I'm glad you mentioned too the thing about the digital. Cut out because i forgot to talk about that in whatever chapter that was in who knows <laughs> uh but i really like that idea that briggs had hidden in like plain sight in the same way that he hid you know his little you know magic whistle thing uh in the you know his his recliner in his living room but like i i thought that there might be something where you know, the, the coordinates, you know, would have been hidden, you know, in like something that we saw in the show, you know, at some point, just like in plain sight like that, or like something you would see on the main page of like the Blue Rose Task Force, you know, like login or something like that. So, um, but yeah, but I, I like what you did with that even better <laughs> uh, than uh, my speculation, Kyle. That was great.
3: Like I say, I have to make it make sense to me. So I have to make this crap up.
0: Well, you know, the, the reference to God of Light brings me back to the Miss Twin Peaks contest. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm thinking that it it would have been better if uh, uh, the w- the woodsman was one of the judges. Uh, yeah. <laughs> instead of Dick Tremaine. Which, which they woodsman? They both have the same line. The,
1: the one from oh, the radio Lincoln, station the Lincoln, or the one l- who listens to our podcast? podcast?
0: Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking the Lincoln one. Yeah, um,
1: He would have freestyled
2: a way better poem than those things that Wyndham Earl was writing to try to get people to participate <laughs> in That's the in, in the Miss Twin Peaks right.
0: pageant, yeah. That's right. Well, uh, I, I think we can tie it up. I think we're done. Um, unless there's any, any final, final, extra final thoughts that anybody wants to add. My
2: extra final thoughts is that if you do own the final dossier, make sure you don't miss the super freaky thing at the very end after all the text which yes. is uh I, th- I think it has super impo- has bob the lincoln woodsman you just talked about the gotta like guy and that super creepy it's like sarah palmer's face juxtaposed with like the jumping man all on one page to haunt your your subconscious nightmares for years to come so that was that was creepy make sure you don't miss yeah that.
1: We're also going to put that on a T-shirt for your line of cafe press products. Jeff. How long
2: have my Charlie T-shirt saying off? Where yes. We- yeah,
0: Charlie's We're going to have to find.
2: Oh, go ahead. I was ahead. saying Charlie should make a line of coats. That would be beautiful.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do think. I do think somebody should do an analysis of all the different diamond triangle symbols that are everywhere in this book. On the cover of this book uh, and on the cover of the Secret History, um, uh, you, do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. These little
2: yeah, oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I was they, trying to figure so out if it had any significance or not.
0: But yeah, it's it's so hard to say. And I know somebody made this like mesmerizing GIF. Again, I'm going to pronounce it Jeff. Uh, of it's all those different butter, symbols,
3: I'm, I'm I'm with Ken on this. This is this is a chance chance kind of thing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if somebody's done an analysis of that I don't I don't know. Uh, but for our listeners, we are not done. Uh, we, we, with the support of our generous patrons, uh, we are planning in 2018 to cover uh, the David Lynch over in terms of his feature films and maybe some of his other stuff. Uh, not sure if we're going to do the Duran Duran documentary, uh, but we'll do it that last. Could be on the list. Yeah, maybe uh, we don't know which one we're going to do next. Uh, we, we, we're going to allow Jeff to take a sabbatical uh, while he's on paternity leave, um, but it, it will be, we'll be putting it together in, uh, in 2018. So this concludes uh, episode 23 about uh, Twin Peaks, the Tamara Preston Live Journal, and, uh, and there we go. Merry Anything Christmas else? and
3: Happy New Year! You guys
2: want
1: to say? Yeah, Happy Holidays right. to all our listeners. Thanks so much. We have Patreon subscribers. How cool is that? Absolutely. Yes.
2: Very exciting. Twin Peaks was one of the things that that helped all of us get through 2017, and uh, it oh. was it was a, a pleasure to talk about it with you guys each uh, each week during the summer, especially.
1: Sometimes it was the and only
0: congratulations. Thing. Yeah, and and congratulations, Jeff. I hope I didn't overstep my boundaries by announcing your impending journey. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Are we all done? I think we're done. Yeah. Let's wrap it. We're good. All right. Hit stop. What year is this?
4: I'm gonna chop